few years ago, I had a conversation with someone who felt guilty about feeling abandoned by a close loved one who had passed away. Even though they knew intellectually that cancer was the cause of death and not willful abandonment, yet the feeling of abandonment was still there. As one pastor notes this, death and feeling abandoned go hand in hand. He writes, a parent gets cancer and dies young, and so a little child often feels abandoned by his mother or father who died. The child's heart just feels that way. Feelings have no IQ. Head knowledge has nothing to do with it. This pastor also notes, the other day I was talking with a young man. His own father had died 10 years ago when he was in his 20s. And this young man told me he missed his father to help him make a decision about his own marriage. His brain knew better, but his heart was feeling that his father had deserted him 10 years ago when he passed. Or as he notes, I have numerous friends who have been married for 50 plus years and one of the spouse dies. The remaining partner often feels abandoned. Why did you leave me to face the end of my life all alone without you? Death often causes people to feel abandoned. You see, my friends, the feeling of abandonment is one of the worst feelings in the entire world. And we often feel it at the end of life. For many people, especially Christians, when we go through times of trouble, we have the notion that God has abandoned us. Where are you, God? And that is what we'll talk about next week in more detail when we study the book of Habakkuk. Where are you, God, when these things are happening in my life? And while this is certainly not the case, this is what we believe in our hearts We feel left alone. We feel we have to fend for ourselves. Oftentimes, it is simply out of our control. But sometimes, this feeling of abandonment is because of our own doing. When we have placed our trust in someone or something that we believe will be with us through times of trouble till the very end, only to shockingly realize they do not stand with us. Many, even in the Christian circles, have been tempted to turn to trusting in the world, trusting in other people, trusting in their own monetary wealth and resources, trusting in their own sinful living to build for themselves something that they can hold on to that they feel will never abandon them so that they won't have to experience in their lifetime the feeling of being left. What we're going to find out this morning is if we have ever thought about siding with the sinful world represented by its people and its objects as the foundation of our trust, we will come to the shocking realization that when we go through times of trouble, the world will abandon us. When God punishes the wicked world, when God punishes us for our sins, there is no way to defend us. We will find out that sin will abandon us, and I hope we will learn this lesson when we are younger, and not learn the lesson when it is too late, having wasted our life. 
We're going to see this play out in God's punishment of the nation of Assyria as represented by her capital city, Nineveh. We continue our sermon series entitled Love and War as we exposit the book of Nahum and Habakkuk. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Nahum, chapter 2. We begin in verse 3 and we study all the way to the end of this book, chapter 3, verse 19. Nahum chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, to chapter 3, verse 19. And as you're turning to this passage in the Old Testament, remember, as we've talked about these past few weeks, this book is a prophecy against the Assyrian nation. It is not without cause that God is angry at the Assyrians. Because they have stood in opposition to God, and they have oppressed God's people. And so now God's rightful wrath is seen through His judgment on the Assyrians. It is a judgment they certainly deserve. The verses we're going to read and study this morning are not very nice verses. In fact, we may be a bit surprised that we find these verses in the Bible. But as you read these intense verses, always remember that God's judgment and justice is perfectly fair. And it is not poured out without cause. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 13, what you're going to see here is a prophetic description of what God will do to the city of Nineveh, which history proves is what indeed does happen. In verses 3 to 4, it pictures the capture of Nineveh with the invading armies of the Medes and the Babylonians coming quickly to overtake this city. There is mention of the color red in verses 3 and 4. This can either picture the color of the army that's coming to invade Nineveh, or more likely this refers to the blood that will be spilt in the capture of this once great ancient city. In verse 5, there is a call by the king of Assyria for his noblemen to come and help defend the city. And some will try to help defend the city, but the Bible tells us they literally stumble in the chaos of the attack. They are powerless to help. Verse 6 talks about the city being flooded with water destroying the city. And now we pick up in verse 7. Look with me. It is decreed. Nineveh shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breast. I want you to underline and circle that first phrase in verse 7. It is decreed. God decreed that Nineveh will fall, and it falls. You see, you need to understand, my friends, when God decrees something in your life, He's given you all the chances He's going to give you. His patience has run out. And what God has decreed, He doesn't change His mind. Once it is decreed, it is final, it is executory. And no one can stand up to it. Verse 8. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. But no one turns back. In this continuing description of Nineveh's destruction, Nahum describes everyone abandoning the city. Some of the leaders who remain cry out to those running away, Halt, halt, stop, stop, stop running. Come back, come back, help us. Look what the Bible says at the end of verse 8. No one 
turns back. No one's going to help. This is a picture of abandonment. These leaders were desperate. Come, help us. Help us. Stop the running. No one turns back. In verse 9 to 10, it talks about the plundering of this once richest city in the ancient Near East in the 7th century. Now it's left with nothing. And verses 11 to 12 talks about invaders making fun of the Assyrians, pictured here as lions and young lions who were once ferocious, but now they're left unable to hunt. They have been decimated. The final verse of this chapter captures something very revealing. Look with me, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall deliver your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Would you also underline that first phrase of verse 13 when God says, I am against you. Have you ever heard God say that? You and I should understand that when God says that of a people or of a person, nothing will stand up to Him and the world will abandon the one to whom God says, I am against you. You see, I want you to understand something, my friend, something very Simple, but yet profound. Number one of your taking notes. When God is against you, a sinful world will not stand with you. When God is against you, a sinful world will not and cannot stand with you. The leadership of the Assyrians pleaded for their nobles and those running away, come and help us against this Decreed judgment, verse 7, of God. But once God says, I am against you, don't expect people to want to come to help you or are able to help you. Likewise, in our lives, because of our sin, when God says, I cannot take your sinful life anymore, even as Christians, do not think that the world to whom you have sided with will come to your aid. They will turn their backs on you as quickly as they can, and you will feel saddened. Look at your life. How many times have you expected that your kindness to someone else, when you help them in their time of need, will be returned likewise? How many of you believe that there is reciprocity in kindness? When all is well, you are friends with that person, they tell you, you can count on me. I will be here for you. Oh, but are they? More often than not, when you need money, when you need a place to live or stay, when you need them to stand with you, guess what? They're not there, and you and I should not be surprised. We should not be surprised especially when they see that you are going through God's hand of judgment as seen in the troubled times of your life. Don't think that the world to whom you have trusted will help you, will be there for you. You have to understand this truth because the practical implication of understanding this truth is then why do we place such deep trust in that which will abandon us? Why do we invest our lives into people 
and things that will not stick with us when God's rightful wrath in judgment is executed in our life. Because that which we love and trust when they turn their backs, the hurt is much bigger. The pastor from New York, Tim Keller, a Redeemer Church, gives this example. If after a church service one Sunday morning, if a member of my church comes to me and says, Pastor, I never want to see or talk to you again. He says, I'll feel pretty bad. But if my wife comes to me and says, Tim, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that's a lot worse. Because he notes, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And therefore, you've got to ask yourself, where do we invest our love? The deeper the love for the world, the greater the torment of the feeling of loss and the feeling of abandonment, often at the end of life, often too late. The shocking realization that when you need the world to help you, they do not stand with you. If you don't believe me, just think of what happens to men and women who are no longer relevant or important or needed. See how the world treats them. Just look at the elderly in our society. When they're past their prime, very few stand along with them. Look at the former sports star in their heydays, in their glory days. Oh, we would love to be with them. But when their time has come, and in the sports world, that's like when you turn 35. That's it. There's someone younger. There's someone better. And some former sports stars... You just kind of feel pity for them. They're trying to be relevant. They're trying to be cool. But guess what the reality is? No one thinks much about them. Think about older movie stars. Everyone wanted to be them when they were hot commodity. But now if they're past their prime according to Hollywood standard, we don't think much about them. Or about businessmen and women who no longer control the business empire. Once you let go, and that's the biggest fear of most businessmen and women, once they let go, no one will approach them anymore. No one will think about them anymore. No one will come and ask for their advice anymore. These are the realities of life. And so if we realize that the world will not stand with us when God is against us, then logic should dictate that we should never be on the wrong side. We should be on the side of God where He can never say of us, I am against you. You and I need to go back and ponder this truth and how it applies in our life. Because when God is against you, the sinful world is not able to stand with you. In chapter 3, Nahum continues in verse 1, describing a city that was known for its cruelty, especially in their treatment of those nations that they had conquered. And so now they were getting judged. In verse 2 and 3, Nahum prophetically sees a city that is full of dead bodies. In fact, there were so many dead corpses on the ground that the invading soldiers had trouble walking because they were tripping over so many dead bodies that had piled up. It is a horrific scene. It is not a scene we would expect God prophesying about a nation. 
And yet, history tells us this is exactly what happened to the city of Nineveh. Why would God bring such dreaded judgment to this city and to this nation? The reason was because of her wickedness. Look at verse 4. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through their harlotries and families through their sorceries. Assyria is described as a harlot, a prostitute, who lures nations into trusting her and then stabs them in the back and captures them. They are also described as one who practices sorcery. They are involved in the dark arts as part of their pagan religion. This is a nation steeped in occultism and sexual perversion. These are the things that God hated. And therefore, God has a justified reason to release His rightful wrath upon a nation in such a devastating way because they deserved it. Look at what He says in verses 5 and 6. Here it is again. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. Here are those words again. I am against you. God was against this nation. And His punishment, the Bible says... I will shame you. Because of what they did in opposition to God and against His people, God would shame them. In fact, it is almost shocking when we read verse 5 and 6 that these would be the words of God. The imagery is quite graphic. A skirt is lifted up to expose the nakedness of these people. God says, I will shame them. I will expose them. The nations of the world, the entire world, would laugh at them. And then verse 6, I will make them a sickening sight to behold. And here Nahum pictures God covering the Assyrians with human feces and then showing the world. It's a disgusting sight. Verse 7, And it shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? A picture of abandonment. Because now that Nineveh has been shamed, has been made a spectacle, in their destruction, no one will mourn for her. You can even try to pay people, the Bible says, but they can't find professional mourners who will mourn the departure of the empire of Assyria. These are intense words. But the intensity of these words shows the intensity of the shame God will bring about to those who sin against Him. You see, I want you to see something else, number two. When God is against you, He will shame you by exposing your sins to the world. He did that with Assyria. He will do that with you. When God is against you, when He's had enough of your sinful life and my sinful life, He will shame you by exposing your sins to the world. For many of us, we're not afraid of sinful living, even as Christians. We're not afraid to live in sin. But what we're afraid of is losing our face, especially in our culture, 
We continue to sin, but the only way we're going to stop is with the threat of being exposed and being humiliated. Because somehow we have this notion, I don't know where we get it, that we are invincible. No one will ever find out. Well, my friends, a God who is omniscient, who knows all, who is omnipresent everywhere always, a God who is omnipotent, knows everything. And one of his judgments in dealing with sin is that he says, I will shame you by exposing your sins to the world. Be warned that when he is head enough of your sinful living, he is against you. He will expose your sin. Many of us are not afraid of committing a bit of corruption. We believe, well, this this country is corrupt anyways. I'm just a, a simple player. Oh, we do it until we are found out and exposed. And you know the hypocrisy of all of it? When we're exposed for our corrupt acts, then all those who are corrupt, what do they do? They don't want anything to do with us. And they say, oh, you're so corrupt. The irony of that. We're afraid that although we owe people money and we have the capacity to pay them back, but we don't, we don't mind if they get angry at us. But heaven forbid that we would be exposed as individuals who have skipped out on paying back someone we owe. I can go on and on. But the reality is this. Be very careful because it is in God's arsenal of judgment that He will bring into your life perhaps the judgment of shaming your name by exposing your sins to the world. As I was thinking about that this week, I thought this plays out in our current newspapers. I think of someone like Hollywood's Harvey Weinstein or the actor Kevin Spacey. You know who they are. A year ago, if the actor Kevin Spacey and I don't think he would have, but if he did, come into our church, you'd all be rushing back to take picture with this amazing actor. But if he came into our midst today, I don't think any one of you would want to have anything to do with him because of his sexual misconduct. And yet for years, these two men were on Hollywood's A-list. They hobnobbed with presidents of nations They hung out with celebrities and they thought that no one would ever find out what they did 20 years ago. Oh, but they were exposed and they were humiliated and shamed and Hollywood will now touch them and their friends all abandoned them because my friends, that is the world for you. They will abandon you and move on to someone else. And yet the ironic thing is that it was this corrupt and sinful Hollywood system that allowed their sins to thrive. And you can shout, it's not fair. Other people did it. Guess what? The world is tone deaf. You've done it. You've done it. And now, you're an evil person. 
It is filled with irony and hypocrisy, but that is the harsh realities of life. We do what the world wants, and then when we experience the consequence of God's judgment, the world says, I wash my hands, you're on your own. And you can shout even as a Christian, but everyone did it. Why was I the only one? Shamed. Forget everyone else. No one's going to think like that. Only you think like that. That is the reality when we side with the world. It is absolutely crazy when you think about it. And I use the word crazy in its direct definition. It is absolutely crazy that Christians today still strive to be accepted in this world system. It is crazy that Christians today want to be part of a world that will spit them out and throw them out when God's judgment is upon them. When you are shamed, they are not going to stand with you. You and I better think through this truth. Our third principle is found in verses 8 to 19. In verses 8 to 10, Nineveh is compared with the Egyptian city of Thebes. In some of your Bibles, the translation is Noaman, the city of Amon, the city of the sun god, that is the city of Thebes. Thebes was a mighty capital city of the Egyptians. It was protected by waterways. It had allies to the south, modern-day Sudan and Ethiopia today. It had allies all the way to the west as far as Libya today. And yet even with these natural defenses and allies, the Bible tells us Thebes was still captured and ironically was destroyed by the Assyrians. Her security was not guaranteed even with their natural defenses and allies. And the Bible tells us in verse 8 and 10, That like Thebes, the same thing will happen to Nineveh. This mighty capital of the Assyrians will be destroyed. That's what verse 11 says. In verse 12, that their once impregnable fortresses and fortifications would be weakened and fall. In verse 13, it talks how vulnerable they are now, how they would be defenseless. We pick up in verse 14. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. In sarcasm, Nahum encouraged the Ninevites, go, prepare for God's wrath. Go, reinforce the walls. Go, draw water, prepare for the siege. And look what happens when they do that. Verse 15, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. When they go and prepare for God's judgment, they're not able to do so because fire and sword takes them down. These verses speak of how powerless they were to help themselves. In fact, at the end of verse 15, Nahum tells them, Go, get more men, multiply your men. You need men like the swarms of locusts because the invading forces are also like swarms of locusts. But the Bible says, even with those numbers, they are powerless to help themselves. Verse 16. 
You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. This is a city that had developed a network of friends of other nations through trade. They have made their nation and empire rich, and they have made other allies rich as well. But the Bible tells us when God's judgment comes, they will fly away. They will not help in the defense of Nineveh. Even though the Assyrians plead for their help, the Assyrians are powerless to even get their friends to help. These rich trading partners have made their money, but now they have no more use for Nineveh. Why do I want to risk my life to help? We're just going to wait for the new empire to come and we'll do trade with them. They were powerless to get their friends to help, to convince their so-called friends to help. Verse 17, your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedge on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away and the place where they are not is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Verse 17 and 18 tells us that many of the officers of the army of Assyria abandon their posts to save themselves. Their leaders and their noblemen look out for themselves. They do not help their countrymen. And these leaders and rulers of Assyria are powerless to convince their own army officers to look beyond themselves for the greater good of their own country. You see, these verses teach us a very important principle about life. Number three, when God is against you, you are powerless to help yourself. When God is against you, you are powerless to help yourself. Everything you do will be unsuccessful. Everything you had depended on for help will either not help you or are incapable to help you. Even your most trusted friends who you believe would stand by you would abandon you because they only serve themselves. And you, my friends, are powerless to force anyone to help you. This is a picture of the real world. Ask anyone who has lived their life long enough to have been burned and abandoned. They will tell you this is true. When God's hand of judgment is upon you and He doesn't bless your life, you are powerless to help yourself and you are powerless to convince others to help you. You don't believe me? In your families, you experience this. You perhaps have a yaya or a helper. You treat them very well. In fact, you help them when they have financial need. You provide the best for them. But one day out of the blue, your helper comes and tells you, I'm going to leave today. And you need them. And so you plead with them, please, can you at least give me till the end of the week? Can you please at least stay one month? Can you please stay until I find a replacement? Now, I can probably take a survey of all of those of you who have experienced this and ask you, how many of those helpers heed your call to stay a little bit longer? Almost none. They will leave on that day when they say they left. Right after the 9 o'clock service, someone came up to me and said, it's so true, it happened to me yesterday. I pleaded with them, stay, stay. When they're going, 
they're gone. If you don't believe this is the harsh realities of life, you have not lived life. In a greater way, when God is against you and punishes you for your sinful life, even as a Christian, you are powerless to help yourself. Oh, but we are under the delusion, and especially younger people, listen carefully. It's fun to live a sinful life. It's fun to live a worldly life. The world says, don't worry about the consequence. Do you know why the world says, don't worry about the consequence? Because when you have to suffer the consequence, they're not there. You'll be left, as they say in the English idiom, you'll be left holding the bag. You're on your own. But in the meantime, have lots of fun. Have lots of fun. Live your life like we do. Don't worry about the consequence. And so the world says, oh, it's great to have sexual encounters with different partners, whether you're married or you're single. Don't live in holiness. Have fun. Oh, but when you get an STD, when you pick up AIDS from which both have no cure medically, then you will understand the harsh realities that you are powerless to help yourself. Let me ask you, you know our culture well. If any one of you were to raise your hand and tell me or tell the church, I have AIDS because of the lifestyle that I have lived. Although as a church we should love you and care for you, here is the reality of the situation. You raise your hand and you tell someone they have AIDS, you're not going to find many friends sitting with you. You're going to find that most everyone wants to have nothing to do with you. Oh, they wanted to party with you when you didn't have it. But when you got it, you're on your own. You become a social pariah. You can beg and you can plead, but you can't force people to help you. And here's what I need you to understand, fellow Christians. As Christians, even if you say sorry and ask for God's forgiveness, He will forgive you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I believe that with absolute certainty. However, forgiveness of sin and suffering the consequence of sin are mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that if God forgives your sin, that He will not allow you to experience the consequences of your actions. But you say, well, pastor, there's a verse in the Bible that says, God remembers our sin no more. But that verse has been taken so out of context to justify a lifestyle that is inappropriate. Yes, God remembers our sin no more in the sense that when it comes to our eternal judgment, He will not take our old sins and use it against us. So when we ask God for forgiveness, He will forgive us. But there are many times within God's prerogative, He can say, however, you must live with the consequences of your sin. Just because you say you're sorry doesn't mean your AIDS goes away. Just because you say you're sorry doesn't mean the baby in your womb just goes away. Ask the many single mothers who get pregnant out of wedlock and their boyfriends run away and they're truly sorry for the mistake and God forgives them, but now the decisions they've made affects their life because now they must live with the consequences of their action. 
These are the harsh realities of life. And that's why our generation does not hear this message enough, young and old. And that's why we live in sin. And that's why a book like Nahum is so important for our generation today. Because we only have a one-sided view of God that He is gracious and merciful and absolutely forgiving. And amen to that. I preach enough sermons about the love of God. But remember, it is in the prerogative of God that He forgives you, but you must deal with the consequences of your own choice. You don't believe me? Look at verse 19. Your injury has, would you circle that? No healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? This is the concluding verse of this book. The Lord clearly states that as soon as the Assyrian Empire is destroyed, it will be impossible to build her up again. Throughout history, God has prophesied against other nations. But God never said that they would not be restored. And so God prophesied against the kingdom of Greece. Today, there are Greek people. God prophesied against the Romans, the empire, in the book of Daniel, it would fall. Today, there are Italians, there are Romans. God prophesied against the Persians. Today, there are Persians. God prophesied against the Assyrians, but unique to the Assyrians, He said... The injury has no healing. Today, there are no people known as the Assyrians. There is no genetic, cultural Assyrian today. God wiped them out. They are remembered no longer. And when I first read verse 19 this week again, it scared me in a way that I have to understand that God is not someone to be trifled with. Because yes, God absolutely forgives everyone who calls upon His name. But when God's patience runs out, the tipping point where His patience ends, God has within His right to say, I will forgive you, but I will not restore you. Back to your original condition we as Christians have forgotten that and so we ask God for forgiveness and we commit the same sin and we ask God for forgiveness and say we'll never do it again and we commit the same thing that is a game of true Russian roulette if you understand the term because you keep playing that game God will say I forgive you but you know what enough is enough who are you kidding I'm a God who is sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent. I see everything. You have no desire to change. Well, now, because I love you, and with a loving discipline, you will be powerless to help yourself. I will not restore you back to your condition before. That should be a wake-up call to our generation today, both young and old, that it is within the prerogative of God that He 
can choose not to restore us to our position of blessing. Don't play this game with God. When you come to Him in repentance and come to Him in confession, it is a genuine, genuine repentance and transformation of life. I mentioned this when I was speaking to another church last weekend in the province. I said it's a funny thing. Women and women are in the hospital room, and when they're going through something medically, they will promise God the world. They will promise that if God heals them, they'll do Bible study every day. I've heard that. Oh, God, if you heal me, I will live my life for you. Oh, God, if you heal me, I will give my life for you. I'll even be a missionary. I've heard all of those things. But you know something magical happens? The moment they leave the hospital, they forget everything. They forgot. They forgot and they made a promise to God. Well, if I don't remember, maybe God won't remember. What kind of games are we playing when God knows our hearts? And so verses like this remind us that there are times when what we've done has no healing. As we close this book, we are reminded that as God's judgment was poured upon the Assyrians with cause, God's judgment may pour upon our life with cause for the sinful way we live. And when God says of our sinful life, I am against you and I am against the way you live, no one from the world will or can stand with you. You will be shamed publicly. Your sins will be exposed and you are powerless to help yourself. And then we will experience true abandonment. But I don't want to end this sermon on such a downer note. How wonderful it is to know that the Scriptures also teach us that when we draw near to God, what does the Bible says? He draws near to us. Walter Winchell writes, A real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. And praise God, there is such a person and the person of Jesus Christ. Because when we are abandoned by the world, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf to be the propitiation for our sin, meaning His death appeased God's rightful wrath. And while the world will drop us and move on to someone else, the Bible tells us Jesus Christ stands with us. He even accompanies us when we come before the God who judges. The Bible tells us that Jesus intercedes for us before the heavenly throne day and night. He defends us from the attacks of the accuser, the devil. And while all of the accusations of Satan are true, Jesus intercedes before the Father, and he says, By my blood, Stephen Tan is made righteous. By my blood, fill in your name, is made righteous. The accusations are true about how we live our life, but he is before the heavenly throne, interceding on our behalf. He is the one who stands closer than a brother. Instead of being shamed that I deserve, What did the Bible tell us? Jesus took the shame of our sin and put it on Himself. 
He declared to the entire world that He bears the transgression of the world. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, the Bible says. And that's why He says on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because He took on the transgression and sins of the world. He was publicly shamed. So shameful that the Father could not look upon the Son and forsook Him so that He would experience abandonment. And He willingly bore our shame. That's why when we sing as a song of response, How Great Thou Art, I want to key you in to the second verse. You know the song? That on the cross, my burden what? My burden gladly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. He bore the shame that I deserve. And He took it upon Himself. And they despised Him and they rejected Him. He who knew no sin. And while we are powerless to help ourselves, it is through His power that we are enabled. Remember the Great Commission of Matthew 28? All power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus. And through me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I hope the choice has been made clear to you. Do you want to stand and align your life, even as Christians, with the world that will drop you the first sign of trouble? Or do you want to invest your life in a relationship with one who will stand with you on the day of judgment and plead your case on your behalf? If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, and I implore you to trust Him today, lest you feel the abandonment of an eternal abandonment in hell. If you do know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, then stop living for a world that will abandon you and begin to live for one who will stand with you on the day of judgment who through His appeal gets you into glory. And you begin by living your life in relationship with Jesus Christ today so that you do not play Russian roulette with your life, so that you do not have to have God discipline you where the consequences are irreversible, that we may humbly come before Him and say, Lord, forgive us we have lived our lives and you are against us. We want to live our lives or you can be proud of us. May God's word bring conviction to each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even in my own life for too long, I play games because the attraction of the world is simply attractive. And yet, to be exposed to the harsh reality that everyone deserts us 
in our time of need, real need, is a stark reminder in contrast to the one we call Lord and Savior who never leaves us nor forsakes us. And so may our lives turn back to you. May each of our lives be lived in recognition that you who died on the cross on our behalf, who took on the public shame that we deserve is the one who enables us to live a glorious life. Transform the men and women who are here this morning. Change the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.